Broadcasting from Purple Earth. Our language has to be preserved. It has to be held sacred because it is sacred. <laughs> I'm afraid, sir, you have rather a weak grasp of reality. Your reality, sir, is lies and balderdash. And I'm delighted to say that I have no grasp of it whatsoever. This week on A Different Reality, we talk with members of the First Nations of the Upper Great Lakes region of North America. When Christopher Columbus first arrived at the North American continent from Europe, he thought he was in India. So when he found people there, he called them Indians. For a long time, the original inhabitants of North America were known as American Indians, and later political correctness gave rise to the term Native Americans. On a trip across our northern border, we encountered the term First Nations, the nations that were here first. We talk about preserving their languages, their culture, and their traditional ways of life. We also get into the efforts to overcome demeaning stereotypes of Native people. We meet and talk with the First Nations this week on A Different Reality. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, hello, and welcome to A Different Reality. This is A Different Reality, number 506, Conversations with the First Nations, recorded for release the week of May 6th, 2005. My name is Abby Z. And I'm Rosie. The day after our last show was May 1st, 2005. May Day. This is what I wrote in our calendar. It's been cold and windy for over a week. Brrr. It finally started getting nicer the next day, and the rest of the week has been just beautiful, sunny and warm. Although normally we should have been having spring rains, and we haven't had many of those. Global warming, I'm thinking. Anyway, getting back to May Day, last week we said we'd discuss the origins. May Eve was known as Beltane to the Celts, Valpurgisnacht to the Teutons, and Pluralia to the Romans. It was a celebration to acknowledge the virgin aspect of the goddess and her male consort. It was a time to jump over the fire with your loved one and make love in the fields, thus ensuring fertility in the land and abundant crops in the seasons to come. By the 1700s, the churches in Europe had banned the pagan rituals, although many peasant workers who belonged to craft guilds would ridicule the church and state on May Day. Meanwhile, in the United States, the working-class movement began campaigning for an eight-hour workday. And then on May 1, 1886, there was an historic strike in Chicago at the McCormick Harvester Company, and police killed six striking workers. Three days later, at a demonstration in Haymarket Square, a bomb exploded, killing eight police officers. Police then arrested eight anarchist trade unionists, claiming that they threw the bomb. Whether or not they were guilty or innocent was not relevant. They were agitators, stirring up the working class, and had to be taught a lesson. Four of these men were found guilty and executed by the state of Illinois. Apparently, after this uprising, many workers around the globe became united to uphold the rights of workers. Before the eight-hour workday, many people, including children, worked 10 to 16-hour days. Death and injury were common. This finally started to change once labor unions came into being, finally giving workers rights that they'd never had before, like safety precautions, the five-day work week, and paid holidays. May Day is still celebrated to some extent in many countries by giving flowers, dancing around maypoles, and treading the earth to stimulate her fertility, along with parades in various parts of the globe to recognize the rights of workers. Unfortunately, the United States keeps losing union jobs. The best thing you can do now for these workers is to buy products that are labeled union-made or fair trade and to shop when you can at member-owned co-ops and locally-owned stores and businesses instead of big-box stores or corporate chains. For more information regarding May Day and labor unions, check out our website at www.purpleearth.net.
We're sitting with vocal activist Daniel Poehler. One thing that had us bring him into the studio here today is his ancestry and the things he knows because of it. My ancestors have been in this country for about 150 years or so. Rosie's ancestors have been here for two to 300 years. Daniel, I believe your ancestors have been here a little longer than that, haven't they? Well, uh, our elders say that we've always been here, and uh, a white a man might, might tell you that you came across from the Bering Straits, but uh, don't believe that. You've always been here. That's what the, the elders said. You've been involved a lot with the gathering of wild rice. Is that true? Yes. Um, let's see. If I go this year, I would have picked rice probably 50 years Wow. Now, the Ojibwe, that's the nation that you are part of, right? Right. Maybe you can describe the areas that the Ojibwe inhabit. There's a story that we started off in Canada, eastern Canada. Then there was a migration that a prophecy said that we were going to go to a place where the food grows on water. That was the rice. So we migrated uh, from Canada out to the Atlantic Ocean and back this way into the Great Lakes area. Was this migration, does it coincide with any period of recorded history or is this further back than that? I think it's probably within recorded history. Uh, as we move this way, I think uh, the United States also came into the country. That's, so. that's what I was getting at. Does it coincide with the growth of white settlement in the eastern United States and eastern Canada? It almost seems that way. Anyhow, uh, the prophecy was that we would uh, find a place where the food grows on water, and that's where we would settle, and that's what happened. Uh, so the wild rice is also part of the sacred tradition then as well. Right. Uh, it was a kind of a promise from God. The band that I come from, we uh, settled around a rice lake. For many years, uh, we didn't have a reservation or anything. We were just kind of like squatting. And finally, uh, under the Indian Reorganization Act, the government bought us land around this lake, a rice lake. That's the Molag Band. The rice lake was the center. When did that occur? Probably 1938, somewhere around there, is when we actually became a federally recognized tribe. Had that land besides. To our brothers and sisters and all Maybe you can describe what wild rice is. Is it similar to the rice that we're familiar with? Is it related to that? Not really, according to the scientists. They say it's a grass rather than a rice. It grows on lakes that have uh, muddy bottoms, shallow water, and the water has to flow through it. Okay, so the water can't just be standing. There has to be a little bit of a motion to the water. Right. It has to have something flowing through it. Will it also it, grows on rivers. Will it grow if the uh, base of the plant is underwater all the time, or does it have to dry back completely at some point? No. When it comes up, there's a very critical time, uh, late May or June, there's a critical time when it, uh, the rice reaches the top of the water. If the raw water uh, changes at that point, it has the capability of killing the rice, so it's got to be very... Uh, Changes in what? Temperature? In level? or Level. I see. So if it drops too much or rises too much, that'll really screw it up at this right. point. It's a very uh, sensitive plant, that's uh, the way we look at it. Everything has to be right. That's why uh, when, when we see it, everything's right. right. Maybe we can describe for our listeners what area of the world this plant is indigenous to. In Wisconsin, Minnesota, I've seen that it was in Ohio. So basically we're talking about the upper Great Lakes region right. of North America. My experience. Does it grow in Canada, oh, north of Lake Superior, for instance? Oh yes, uh, uh, the Ojibwa in Canada pick rice too. So. started describing the process of how the rice grows. 
What's the process of gathering the rice and processing it? You know, why don't you describe how it goes? Since the rice grows on water, uh, you need a, either a canoe or, or a boat to get at it. Usually there's two people uh, on the canoe or special rice boat, uh, which is designed so it doesn't really break the stalks or uh, really hurt the rice itself. You know, you just can't use any boat. And you can't just walk out there in your bare feet or with hip waders because that would disturb the uh, roots. If you walk out there in your hip boots and that, there is so much mud on the bottom where rice grows that you would probably sink very far. So there's two people in the boat and you... One pushes the boat or with a pole that has a forked end that you uh, push it on a bunch of rice to propel yourself in the boat. You're the picker. And the picker has two sticks, probably about 36 inches long. And uh, he uses one stick to pull the rice over the boat and he knocks it with the other stick and the rice falls in the boat. That's right. That's one of the main things about picking rice is you have to know when the rice is ripe. And it's also very touchy because uh, on these lakes, if a storm comes and the rice is ripe and it's a bad storm, you miss the rice. So it's all so just sucked uh, into the lake. And right. And what recedes the lake, which is course. okay too. But, but uh, if you want rice, you, you're not too happy about that. Well, even in the course of the rice harvest, there's going to be some kernels that fall into the lake. That's it's part of uh, one of the reasons why... Uh, in Wisconsin that uh, you cannot use any uh, mechanized means to pick rice on these lakes because uh, if you do it with machines it's so efficient that it doesn't recede itself. So it's not a perennial it needs to be reseeded every year. Right. What time of year is the harvest? The harvest starts probably in uh, the middle of August and lasts until probably the middle of September. When I was young it used to be a kind of a special time for uh, all the relatives because they would go to different lakes and camp outside the lakes and it would be kind of like a meeting place. It would be kind of a... Sounds like a festive time. It's, it was a very good time. It's kind of changed in these later years since we've had automobiles and all that kind of stuff. Before you had to go out to the lakes and camp around it, you just couldn't go back and forth. So now uh, all the camping and uh, all the relatives in one spot for a period of time is kind of a gun. Way. It's kind of changed a lot. I think a lot was lost in that. I used to enjoy seeing all the people camping and uh, there was kind of a special camaraderie. Now, in one of the books I have, I believe it says that the women separated the chaff from the grain. Is that correct? Or to extend the conversation, that once the rice is in the boat, everything's then not all happens? done. You, know, you, you don't just put it in bags and that's it for the season, right? No. It's a big process besides, and uh, now it's not just women doing everything. I think maybe a longer time ago that uh, women were more in charge of all that kind of stuff, but now uh, men and women are equally involved. Even to say that it's really not that many people doing that now anymore. We kind of kid about all these casinos and that they rather work in the casinos rather than go out and pick rice. You don't just pick the rice, you have to prepare it. And it's really a hard job, really. It takes time. It's a lot of work. Maybe that's why nobody really wants to follow through on it unless you really like being out on the lake and uh, the sky is blue and you're picking rice and it's uh, it's just a special time. And you're getting all this food and you're not having to pay a corporate supermarket for it. That's exactly right. You enjoy nature and its gifts. When you're out there, you're actually thankful. But anyhow, after you get the rice in a boat, then you have to dry it in the sun. The kernel itself is kind of milky when you get it off the off the lake. Then you have to parch it over a fire and, and it kind of like uh, dries it up into a, a hard kernel. And then you have to dance the rice, which is kind of a jump up and down on it. And it's like thrashing. Kind of loosens the husk from right. the kernel. Then you have a winnowing basket, which you uh, stand with the wind to your back and you uh, throw the kernels with the loose shaft and the wind carries the shaft away and just leaves the kernels. This is all time consuming. If you have time, there's no better way <laughs> to use oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
You're your own boss, but you do know that how much rice you get is how much you're, you're going to have for the winter time. You're storing your own food, right. and you're not having to depend on a supermarket to get it, and it, it is a degree of self-sufficiency, and I'm sure this dates back to before times of casinos and TVs and video games and right. a lot of other things. And yeah. it's living and working with the seasons. Uh, you're right. That's not done too much anymore, but uh, it's enjoyable. It, you know where where you're at in the season. Sounds like it's grounding. What do you mean? That it kind of reestablishes that connection with the natural elements. I don't know if I'd say that, but uh, it's kind of uh, where you establish yourself in conjunction not only with the elements, but the year and if things are, are, are going the way they usually go. It's uh, the cycle of life. understand that the rice is a traditional staple for the Ojibwe people. What would be some of the other staples of the traditional diet? Of course, maple syrup, venison, whatever wild game you could get, fish. It was a, a very healthy diet, I, I thought. Berries, which is a certain time of the year, too. You know, when I was younger, it was kind of like following the seasons. A maple syrup time, then picking berry time, and then, then there was a wild rice time. Although I imagine the wild rice is something that can store year-round. That's why it was so important, and uh, it's kind of a, gives you some sort of security for the year. You, if you get a bunch of rice, you know you're going to at least have wild rice through the winter. commercial production of wild rice that is something that's grown commercially in a lot of Wisconsin and northern Minnesota now. Has that been a good thing for the uh, traditional wild rice habitat? No. Uh, well, for one thing, uh, in wild rice preparation, I'm sure you'll notice if you buy stuff that was made in the patty, cured and made set ready to eat, that it's not as good as the way it is done traditionally. Actual wild rice is wild. I know for sure that it, it doesn't taste the same. Is there a weed or a bug that wild rice is vulnerable to, or is it pretty much fend for itself pretty well biologically? Uh, well, uh, if you ever go out picking rice, you better be used to bugs, <laughs> mm -hmm. because bugs are all over the place and, and the rice is still there. Blackbirds is a different story. They like rice too. And I think that's uh, one of the stories I've heard is that's uh, how the uh, uh, native people found out that it was something you could eat as they were watching the birds. They noticed that the blackbirds really liked this stuff. So we're now in competition with the birds for, for the rice. <laughs> <laughs> If people want to buy wild rice that's been sustainably grown and harvested, how can they do that? I'm, I'm not even sure. Uh, about Besides making friends with an Indian. Yeah, that or traveling through a reservation or so. I kind of noticed when I'm playing around the internet now that uh, you, you can uh, go to different reservations where they sell rice, where they say it's uh, native harvest. You would think that it would have to fetch a pretty high price to compensate for all the labor-intensive activity that goes into processing. It does. I would say now that uh, if you're you're traveling through a reservation, it'll be somewhere between 9 and $10 a pound. Just outside the reservation, you'll see uh, signs, four pounds for $10. Uh, that's the patty rice. That's that the As far as uh, our, our reservation, 
the land was chosen because of the rice lake. Uh, the people uh, on the reservation uh, uh, wanted that because, uh, like like we were talking about, it was a a, a way to sustain yourself. A secure the, source of right, food. Right, and, and we we were a small tribe, and that's one of the things that when we had a chance to get some land or or our land back, that we chose a land around a rice lake. The way things go. There's an old story, you know, you, you, you give the Indian the poorest land in, that you can find, or whether it's in a swamp or a desert, and sometimes uh, and in the future... The white man finds something else there that he's sorry he gave up. That's right, and he wants it back, or he'll, he'll destroy your land trying to get at it. Uh, anyhow, about a mile and a half off the reservation, there was a, a copper-zinc deposit found one of the largest deposits in the world. Just so happens that the river that, it's a really a creek that flows past the mine, flows through our rice lake, and it goes through our rice lake and out. If they uh, mined, it would have been a sulfide mine. Sulfide mining is very different from other kinds of mining, mainly in that it is a highly toxic form of mining. When sulfide minerals come into contact with water or air, both of which are in plentiful supply in that region, you end up with sulfuric acid and high levels of poisonous heavy metals, such as mercury, lead, arsenic, and cadmium. The mine that Daniel is talking about is known as the Crandon Mine, and if it were to be built, there would be a tailings pond 90 feet deep covering half of a square mile, the largest toxic waste dump in the history of Wisconsin. Federal agencies, known actually for their corporate-friendly point of view, admit that eventual leakage of such a toxic pond is inevitable, and the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service says that such a toxic dump would be capable of poisoning water supplies for up to 9,000 years. It's no wonder that everybody from the most tree-hugging environmentalists to the most redneck hunting and fishing organizations all banded together with the local First Nations in opposing this mine. Because this was going through our rice lake and uh, it was so important for our tribe that uh, we couldn't let it happen. So it's basically they're upstream from your lake and they were what would be toxifying the water or taking the water away or both? They, they would be doing both. They would be changing the environment completely. Wild rice. As and I no said, more rice beds. Right. So one of the things that right at the beginning was, it was Exxon at the time that had the discovery when we were talking to Exxon, they wanted to put an economic value on the rice, which the tribe wouldn't do because once you put a value on it, an economic value, they can buy you, sell it, whatever. More than that, for the tribe, it went beyond it. It was priceless because of not only culture, but it also represented security or food through hard Absolutely. times. Absolutely. So the tribe uh, fought them for, I don't know how many years, probably 30 years, and <laughs> finally won. of the age hear their voices hear their cries face to face and eye to eye where there's promise there is hope there's you where there's kindness there is love there's you That kind of took a while for uh, the tribe to actually come together as a one unit at the time because there were some people that, uh, you know, if you promise some money. You mean Exxon might have been going around dangling dollar signs in front of people uh, right, or something? Right, they, yeah. they did that. But they really do that. Yes, they would do that. The outcome was that we finally won. We fought not only Exxon, but other mining companies that after Exxon... Well, in a sense, there were all these little victories in between because Exxon finally gave up sold the land to somebody else who eventually gave up and sold the land to somebody else who eventually gave up and sold it to the Mole Lake Band of the Ojibwe. Is that correct? Right, which is exactly the spot we're in right now, which is uh, kind of hard, uh, but uh, the tribe bought it on credit. <laughs> so the time is coming that we have to pay up. That's one of the problems we're, we're at right now, but, but it's in our possession. Part of the land was bought by our, a neighboring tribe, the Potawatomi, who are okay. are really doing well in casinos. They, they own like half of the land. Part of the agreement that if uh, we can't pay for it, that uh, they might uh, buy it. 
the main thing is no matter what happens now if they try to mine again they're starting from uh, ground zero again somehow we'll probably come up with the money somehow but if we don't come up with the money we still uh, screw them over good but it's not totally one until we can right. get that land paid right off. right until we get that land paid off and into trust meaning that nobody can buy or sell it Daniel, is there anything else on your mind these days? What's on my mind these days is I don't like where our government's going. I really don't like what's happening uh, with uh, the federal government in particular at this point. It looks like uh, an oil man got in, guess who's making the money? And not only that, but uh, a war is going on, guess who's making the money? One of the things that kind of uh, bothered me was that I went to a local meeting and uh, we tried to get the the group to say something about an unjust war and the militarism of the United States. The, the question was put aside by the local people and says that that question belongs to the federal level. These kind of questions in a democracy start with the person. And it just seems to me that a lot of the questions that are going now on now, rather than the person taking the responsibility, they say, leave it to our federal government, leave it to our state government. I, th I think in this democracy that a person has to re really realize that he is the foundation or he or she or and that they have to say something. They can't just say, leave it to our representatives. Daniel Poehler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. He raised a crooked sixpence to hide a crooked style. He won a crooked vote, and he smiled a crooked smile. Windigo. Their tongues are silver forks. There's a lack of wisdom. You can hear it on their breath. I'm Tracy Littlejohn, Public Relations Officer for the Ho-Chunk Nation, member of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, have all of my life, as have my ancestors. I think one thing that's definitely different that's helped us be able to maintain what we have is the use of oral tradition. We believe it's much more reliable than a lot of what the European culture believes it to be. It becomes such a craft that you know that it's a reliable source. And even if we're just talking about the stories, it still teaches you the things that you need to know in order to live on this earth and respect everything that the way you need to in order to continue things as the way they're supposed to be. My ancient tradition is what's now English, but before that it was Celtic and before that it was whatever the indigenous people were. And I've heard that the Druids learned the same way. It was t a totally oral tradition so that it couldn't be stolen. Because if you write things down and you put them in print, it can be stolen, it can be burned, it can be buried. The Ho-Chunks feel the same way. A lot of nations throughout North America have begun to write down their histories, they're beginning to share their language, and the Ho-Chunk Nation has not reached that point yet. Our elders have not agreed that it's time to start to teach our language to other people, exactly because of the reason that once we're sharing it, people can take it from us, and they'll abuse it so that it no longer means what it's supposed to mean. Our language is so important to who we are. Without our language, we cannot communicate with the Creator, so our language has to be preserved, it has to be held sacred, because it is sacred. So the nation still believes in that, even though a lot of other nations have started to share their language. Are the oral traditions now still held in the native language or are they passed in the, for lack of a better word, new languages? 
For the most part, they're still done in our traditional Ho-Chunk language. A lot of the stories are told during certain ceremonies. The only time they're really done in English is if it's for someone who does not speak fluent Ho-Chunk. But in translating it, it loses a lot because we have words that there is no way to translate into English. So a lot is lost by translating it into English. Is the language actively being taught to the next generation? We're trying. We have a language program, and a lot of people claim it's their priority, but so far the action isn't there. We do have a lot of teachers out there, but we've still only got 200 fluent speakers. People are beginning to realize that if we don't start trying to do this in a much larger manner right now, we're going to lose it because a lot of those fluent speakers are getting on in age and we're going to lose them soon. The teachers are everywhere, but people aren't utilizing the way that they need to be. haven't really discussed what the content is of oral tradition and not even so much in specifics but in the sense of are we talking history are we talking creation myths spiritual myths stuff like that or is it all of the above well it's all of that a lot of the history is done orally things that we've known archaeologists and anthropologists are just starting to figure out. The myths originated from something. They do tell a creation story in some way. Whether you believe them to be myths or truth, there is some truth in, in that. It teaches you how different creatures are related to each other, how the things are supposed to be treated. It even tells you how to find different medicines, spiritual guidance, things like that. And those are things that Western science doesn't teach you. These are things that are within your own spirit, they're within your mind, they're within your soul. I think in the European culture there were similar tales and myths and they were called fables and they did the same, but people started taking things literally and not seeing the bigger picture. Some of the stories that we have in Ho-Chunk, you know that physically these things are not possible, but when you're looking at the symbolism of it, it just makes sense. It explains things better and definitely in a much easier way to comprehend than a lot of science does. Shifting gears just a little bit, where were your ancestors and what were they doing at the time that the first European explorers arrived? My people, the Ho-Chunk, were right where we are today in Wisconsin. Some are in Nebraska after removals, but a lot of us made our way back to Wisconsin and we took up most of the southern part of Wisconsin and even down into Illinois, Iowa, and over into Minnesota. And at that time, we were living in harmony with some other tribes, not quite so harmonious with others. We were already well-established in a political system, in trade and commerce. We were trading to the point where we were receiving goods that were from the far south. We've only been in contact with the European settlers since the first half of the 1600s. So we're only going into our 400th year of being in contact. of us a gentleman who's had about two hours of sleep in the past 48 hours and look horses uh, my name is matt stewart 
a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. What would you say that the First Nations of North America have to teach the rest of the nations of the world about sustainability? First one I'd have to say is the concept of community and responsibility to your community. And I'm not talking about neighborhoods, you know, community. I'm not talking about your school community. I'm talking about real community that is responsible to its members on a daily basis for all sorts of things, big and small. Um, I think all indigenous, or at least tribal communities, offer that. So for us, I believe that community and sustainability are one and the same. And they have to be. If you have uh, live in a community that's unsustainable, like, say, the United States, well, that's A, not going to be much of a community, and B, not going to last very long. What are the most important issues facing the Native American community? I'm sorry, the First Nations communities today. Crazy white guys with microphones. The number one. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I think the most important issues are those issues that directly go to affect sustainable, lasting community. And if we can continue to maintain our communities. And the only way we can continue to maintain our communities is if we, first of all, have those communities. So sovereignty is an extremely important issue but also have the culture. If we lose our culture, it doesn't really matter what we have sovereignty over because we won't be First Nations people anymore. We'll just be some ethnic groups. If you don't care about your culture, you're much, 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 much more prone to the loss of your culture. No human being can ever be without culture. We are cultural beings. You don't lose one culture and then be cultureless. You slowly give up some things from one while adopting some things from others. And that's the danger in Americanization. It's not just in globalization. It's not just a simple loss of culture for some people. It's the replacement of that culture with an absolutely tyrannical consumerism that is going to destroy the world. If we lose the ability to be proud of our culture, all we're left with is consumer culture. And if we become simple consumers, then we've already fallen out of our sustainable community with the earth. And if we're nothing but consumers, then we're not giving anything back. We've forgotten our responsibility as well to live sustainably with the earth. And I've seen that a lot working with Native youth and Hmong youth, is that if you start teaching them to be proud of who they are, it's much, much, much easier to teach them about sustainability if they're proud of their culture that they're coming from then they're already grasping the concepts as of why sustainability is important. And consumerism is bad, because consumerism doesn't just stop at eating all the trees and poisoning all the water. It seeks to destroy every human being as well, to make you a finer and fitter and more efficient consumer. I think one of the biggest problems is melding that concept somehow with our sovereignty rights. Sovereignty is becoming the strongest weapon we have in fighting consumerism, globalization, and loss of culture in favor of that consumerism. But I think one thing that a lot of people have to understand is that our idea of living sustainably probably differs from other people's ideas of living sustainably. A lot of people in the environmental movement, for example, were horrified when the Maka uh, wanted to go whaling and totally didn't understand the purpose of A, the whaling, in that it is what sustains that culture of which environmentalists used as one of the big reasons to save forests in the same area. Now, you were using the word culture a lot, and I was wondering if you could just maybe define that. For some cultures, their language is the keystone to who they are as people. For others, it's their spirituality. But I would say that for indigenous people, your culture is the way you live your life. Um, many Ojibwe elders will say that if you're not living bimadizawin, which is the, like the Indian way of life, then you're not really 
Ojibwe, you're not really Indian if you're not really living that way of life, if you're not depending on the earth and being responsible to the earth. Americans don't believe that, and I fundamentally believe that there's a very strong American culture. I mean, go to any other country around the world, and everyone will tell you that. So culture is based largely on what the culture you're talking about describes it as. I think it's really interesting, the model UN is here right now. And I've been doing my little things to bug them because the United Nations does not allow nations to be a part of their organization. It allows states, it allows countries, and it allows some nations, but only those nations with recognized, clearly defined political boundaries. It really only defi- you know, really only allows states to be a part of their organization. So maybe they should be called the United States and we should be called, I don't know, the Empire of Bush or something. I don't know. The Empire of Greed. I, yeah, consumers. I don't know. The corporatocracy is when I... The corporatocracy, yeah. Because um, Bush is just an instrument of the corporatocracy <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah, he, he is definitely not the uh, linchpin in it. <laughs> Civilization is obviously one of those terms that has been used for a long time to classify some people as civilized and other people as non-civilized, which then leads to the justification of their genocide. can't emphasize this enough, is definitely a culture. Um, And most Americans, I think, don't like that idea. They don't want to be identified as culturally just American, because I think even for the most conservative Americans, they realize that that is a culture of consumerism, of greed, of big business. People want to be Irish American and Italian American and Polish American and whatever, but nobody just wants to be an American. And I think there's a big, big lesson in that and I would love to see the day when people can be proud again to be Americans. I think that in and of itself is part of the the defining character of of American and I think the day that we lose that, the day that we all become the same, would be really, really sad. Two things. Americans haven't really been around long enough for a cultural identity to really gel. The other thing is that America is such a vast land. It's two, three times the size of Europe. Would you take a person from the forests of Bavaria and say, this is a European? Right. I'm a big fan of localization anti-globalization and I think that America we're looking at still a very diverse group in some cases I remember in Duluth when there was no Shopco and no Cub Foods and no Walmart and no Barnes and Noble and I thought it was great because it was unique it was special it was different Uh, and I'd come to La Crosse and La Crosse was like every other single city in the US and I would actually disagree with your point very strongly. And I would say that America has been around by far long enough to have a very concrete American culture, which other people around the world recognize. However, in the United States, I think most Americans feel that way, that there is not an American culture. They feel cultureless. They feel that because the culture is so empty, I think, and offers so very little, because it's become a culture of consumerism and a culture of materialism only. I mean, American culture, you have to remember, is also based on some really off-the-wall religious movements and ideas, heavily based in the past on a lot of socialist movements. It's based on a lot of racial tensions and movements. I mean, we had slavery in this country for 60, 70 years after the British Empire got rid of it. Um, In the indigenous people's movement, for many people, 
they don't want their own state. It's unimportant. To get their own state would actually be disadvantageous because many indigenous people straddle borders between different countries. And if one country was to grant them an autonomous region or... And the other thing is, for a lot of indigenous people, the idea of a state is not important. But what is important and what should be maintained as important is the idea that they have sovereignty to determine their own destiny and they can maintain their own sovereignty and not have to pay attention to this other culture's idea, which are borders. Hmong people, for example, live in Vietnam and China and Laos and Thailand, and they should be able to determine their own sovereignty because they don't have a cultural concept of a state. So that cultural concept should not have to be forced upon them if that's not what they choose. Another thing, a lot of times I do think of myself as quite the big socialist. I do think that communism and capitalism have been equally as bad for indigenous people. Both are predicated on a consumer-based system designed to use as many natural resources as possible and to move or murder the people that are sta- that stand in the way. And those are almost always indigenous people. Socialist ways are better because they take that rape of the natural world and then at least spread the wealth around. But It is still nevertheless based on the blood and destruction and genocide of some groups of people. It gets back to the very first question is what can non-First Nations people learn about sustainability? And that is community, small local communities. know that human beings are inventive enough and creative enough to stop putting all of our creativity into coming up with ways to perpetuate this ever-growing consumerism and instead come up with new ideas and creative ways to live in communities that are sustainable, even with our very large population of the earth today. I know that we're creative enough to do that because we are the species that is now able to destroy the earth, we should be the species that can at least learn to simply just live with the earth. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. My name is Barbara Munson. I'm a woman of the Oneida Nation. I chair the Indian Mascot and Logo Task Force for Wisconsin Indian Education Association. Uh, So what I'm dealing with is helping to eliminate stereotypes of Indian people in the form of Indian mascots and logos and nicknames and team names. Well, I was going to say, can you just tell us briefly why this is an important issue to the mainstream culture? It's important to the mainstream culture because it's actually a form of more than stereotyping. Because it's in the schools, it's a form of stereotyping that we are teaching all of the children who go to the, into the schools that this is okay. And when we teach children that it's okay to teach inaccurate, inauthentic information, which is what stereotypes do, about an entire race of people, when we do that, we're setting up a, a form of hypocrisy if we are saying that we are public schools and we are in fact serving all students and that we're going to be respectful of all students and we're not going to discriminate and put up barriers to any student getting an education. This is a, a blatant form of hypocrisy. We are dealing with a form of discrimination. We're dealing with a much more serious thing than whether I am offended or insulted. Don't you feel part of it is that it makes Native people invisible? 
Well, yes. It also kind of puts young kids in a place where they need to deal with their identity because there is a sense of Native people being invisible. When I was a kid, I was wearing my braids to school and dark skin, dark eyes, braids, you know, everybody knew I was an Indian. Well, not all Native people look like they are quote-unquote Indian. There are a lot of Native people who don't look Indian, and they're invisible in the first place. And the identity issue piece is about all of the stereotypes that uh, young people are exposed to in our society that cause them to have to waste a lot of their precious time trying to figure out how does that relate to who I am. If you're a Native person and you hear one little, two little, three little Indians, it's just a counting game, right? But you hear the Indians. Because you've been called Indian, and you know that maybe you're an Oneida Indian person, okay, now, what does this counting game have to do with me being Indian? When somebody calls you Pocahontas if you're a girl, and you know it has something to do with you being Indian, what does it have to do with it? If somebody calls a Native boy chief, he's not a chief. He knows he's not a chief. Maybe his culture has a chief, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has some other name for the, a person who's in leadership. Maybe that person in leadership is a spiritual leader. A child being called chief knows that he is not that cultural figure. And sometimes that term is said in a derogatory way, much the way that somebody would call an African-American person boy. Well. Kids are spending an awful lot of their time trying to sort out all of these different messages that come to them from the stereotypes that are alive and well in society at large. Native people are supposed to be, we're supposed to have big noses, we're supposed to wear feathers everywhere we go, we're supposed to live in teepees, we're supposed to always have braids, there are jewelry regulations, we're supposed to be wearing a lot of beads all the time wherever we go. Silver and turquoise. A lot of silver and turquoise. We're supposed to be deeply spiritual. We're supposed to be connected with the earth. We're supposed to be fierce. We're supposed to be bloodthirsty. We're supposed to be so many things. And we sell shoe leather, clothing lines, vehicles, motor vehicles. We see images of Native people, and these are stereotypes, all over in society. There's also some research that's, that recently was written by uh, Dr. Stephanie Freiberg at UCLA. And some of the things that Dr. Freiberg found out are really chilling. European-American students who looked at stereotypical images like Disney Pocahontas and the mascot images experienced a rise in self-esteem. Native students, when they were primed with the same images, experienced a loss in self-esteem. There's something very strange going on. So do we, want, do we want the stereotypes for Native children? No. Do we want them for mainstream children? I really hope not. That's not the way I would want my child to inflate his or her self-esteem. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. During our conversation with Barbara Munson, we asked if she was familiar with any First Nation mascots in any Wisconsin universities, and she told us that her area of expertise was with the K-12 school districts. The day after we finished talking with her, a story ran in the newspapers around Wisconsin about how Marquette University, a Catholic university in Milwaukee, had just turned down an effort to reinstate the school nickname of Marquette Warriors, which had been in use until they became the Marquette Golden Eagles in 1994. It turns out that two members of the Board of Trustees each offered to donate a million dollars to the university if it were to restore the Warriors nickname. The university president, to his credit, said no. In the end, the Board of Trustees decided to continue talking about it, but passed a resolution banning any nickname using American Indian references, imagery, or symbolism. The resolution adds that the university, quote, shall consistently strive to avoid the use of images that diminish, limit, stereotype, or are offensive to the character, history, and culture of any ethnic heritage. Good for them for doing the right thing.
Our last conversation today is with a white guy, Eddie Nix, who has studied the mounds that have been left behind in our region of the world by its prehistoric inhabitants. The Driftless region of southwest Wisconsin, northern Illinois, parts of Iowa and in Minnesota is a very unique area in terms of these mounds in the form of effigies, birds, panthers, lizards, conicals, linears, all kinds of different mounds. So how are the mounds constructed? What are they made of and, and how big are they? Well, they're very old for starters, so we're just rediscovering um, after the sort of genocide and conquest of the native peoples. So they go back before the last ice age, which is approximately 10,000 years ago. How they were made was the shape would be apparently constructed on the ground, and then it would be dug down. So you have an opening in the ground in the shape of, let's say, an eagle with a huge wingspan that might be a couple football fields long and a body part that was all dug out maybe two or three feet deep and then fill it in. What the effigy mounds were for, we don't know, but the way they were constructed is they would dig them out and then they would add different layers of soil, of minerals, different colors. So when they dig down, they'd find different layers like blue sand and then gray clay and then white sand and then a layer of this and a layer of that and the mounds would be built up then about two feet off the ground. So they're very difficult to see and most of them have been destroyed in the course of farming the area. They think about 85 to 90 percent if not more have been destroyed but the ones that survive in the woodlands are still very very difficult to find because as you're walking at the level of the, the earth they don't really appear to be more than a foot high out of the ordinary so you can walk right over them and not know it. The way that some of them are discovered is through aerial photographs. You see on photographs in a plowed field that's been plowed maybe for 40 or 50, maybe even 100 years, the outline still of the different type of soil in these patterns of the mounds. But most of these sites are pretty much unknown to the majority of people. They're only known to certain Native American people in the area and to certain surveyors who, for instance, a man by the name of Jim Schertz, who runs the Ancient Earthworks Society in Madison, which is one of the only groups studying these mounds. And you can find information on the web if you search for Ancient Earthworks Society. What Professor Schertz has done over the years is calculate the different geometric proportions to those. And he's found these geometrical alignments that not only tell astrological truths, but also are in certain sacred proportions. What Professor Schertz discovered in one set of mounds was a relationship to the cycle of Venus. Now this is oh, really deep odd. because Venus has a very weird erratic cycle and he was able to somehow map this out so he could see that these mounds were aligned for a certain timekeeping purpose and to keep track of different planets and different stars, which is one of the functions that are theorized for these. Now, you mentioned that a lot of these predate the Ice Age. Maybe you could explain what it is about this region that the glaciers didn't wipe them out. So this area of southern Wisconsin is called the Driftless Area because the continental drift that came down went around it. And that's why in the surrounding areas you have basically flat land, whereas in the Driftless Area here in southern Wisconsin, we have very hilly land. So that's why these mounds were preserved and not wiped out by the, by the Ice Age. Yeah, it's actually the largest unglaciated area in the North America and Europe. When this glacier ice age thing came down, it was a pocket of life. One of the theories is that, you know, many of the tribes that, that were in this area way back then emerged from this area and that there was actually life during that ice age in this area, although, you know, that's uh, conjecture. So the state has taken the initiative to actually preserve these when they're found. But what happens is a lot of private citizens either don't know about it or sort of keep it as a family secret because they don't want people to know about it because people will come in and, and dig. And certainly the Native American tribes feel the same way. Thank you. You're welcome. Our final word for the day is hiatus. 
we can hear our fans around the world giving a collective gasp and going, oh no! So before you fall down weeping, let us emphasize that we will be back. We undertook this program because we want to play a part in creating a sustainable world, and radio is something that we both know how to do. We wanted to see if we could keep up with the demands of producing an hour-long show each week, week after week. In the end, we can say, yes, we can, but we don't get anything else done. Doing this show is hard work. For now, we'll spare you the gory details of all the things that happen to sounds between our microphones and your ears, but anyone that's worked professionally in radio should be impressed that Rosie and I have been able to produce six episodes of a different reality all by our little lonesome selves. Although we do want to gratefully acknowledge all of the guests that have talked to us, both in our studio and out, over the past couple of months. But to continue like this, one of two things must happen. Either we put together a crappy slapdash show, or we go broke and watch the rest of our lives collapse around us. We need to catch our breath and regroup. We need to clean our house. Our garden needs planting. We need sunshine and fresh air. We need to go shopping. We need to take showers. And we need to find a way to get an income before we run out of money. Producing a different reality has made it difficult to do anything else. Don't get us wrong. We love doing this, and we are proud of each and every episode we've produced. But we can't do 40 hours per year, which was our original target, without a lot of money and a lot of help. When we come back, we'll probably cut our production pace in half, either 20 hours per year or 40 half hours per year. We plan to invest some time into designing better workflow management techniques. Anybody that's worked in media knows what I'm talking about. This will save us a lot of time and aggravation each week as we go forward. We also plan to talk to radio outlets around the world who may actually be able to pay us something to carry a different reality. And that's one place where you can help. If you know of a station that should carry a different reality, let us know about it, and better yet, let the station know about us. If you know of any philanthropists that hand out enough money to keep starving hippies out of poverty while they produce entertaining and thought-provoking audio zines on a sustainable civilization, please point us in their direction. And please point them in our direction. If nothing else, please come by our website once in a while and say hello. We're at www.purpleearth.net. So once again, we'll be back, hopefully by midsummer. So to all of our listeners out there, including the folks in the house we see through our studio window, all of our friends listening in Canada, the folks on the east coast of the United States that check in every week, our listener at the Savannah River Ecological Laboratory in Georgia or South Carolina, all you folks in Great Britain, and especially that die-hard listener catching us every week through a dial-up connection in Israel, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a month or two. And Ariel thanks you too. A Different Reality is created, produced, edited, and assembled by Abby Z and Rosie of Purple Earth. You can contact us through our website at www.purpleearth.net. If you like the music you hear on this show, thank Rosie, our music director. This week's playlist is on our website. I may be the director, but Abby's the engineer. Thanks, Abby. We encourage you to go to your favorite locally owned independent record store to check out this music. Soon we will provide links to a popular music download service where you can buy some of the music you hear on this show. Also keep an eye on the artists' names on our playlist as many will become links to the home websites of these artists. This is all on our website at www.purpleearth.net. The music you heard this week was starting with our theme song at the beginning and end of our show. Lovers of Light by the Afro-Celt Sound System. From the best of both worlds, we have, and I apologize for mispronunciation, Krathad, Iodak, and Zabadda. Ancestor Song by Robbie Robertson and Glenn Velez did Fruits of Labor. Buffalo Nation from the Little Wolf Band and Invoking the Hawk's Spirit by Mesa Music Consort. Then we heard Native Flute Ensemble doing Drummer's Journey and Little Wolf Band did Coyote Dance. There Is You from Bill Miller and Bird. 
from Dead Can Dance. Priest with the Golden Bull by Buffy St. Marie. And Giveaway from Elaine Eskenazi. Mach Chi, Heartbeat Drum Song from Robbie Robertson. And Whippoorwill from our Carlos Nakai Quartet. Everything is Fine from Adam Ski. And Akua Tuta by Robbie Robertson. Kelvin Singh did King Sick Biswas, K Ascendant, and the Black Lodge singers did the Flintstones. A Bombo Summit from Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and Bally Sagu doing Nori. Coyote Dance from Robbie Robertson, and the Final Word from Bill Miller. James Asher paints the nude red, and Euphoria Firefly from Delirium. I think that each and every white musician today owes a huge debt of gratitude to the indigenous people of the world. Without them, we'd probably still be dancing to minuets. Coming up on a different reality, we'll look at car-free summer travel and how it can be a relaxing ride instead of a frantic stress fest. In June, we plan to visit and cover the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair, and we'll try to determine how much of the renewable energy movement is about sustainability and how much is about finding another way to maintain a culture of consumerism. Even though we'll be taking a break for a while, keep checking back with us on a weekly basis because we may slip something in unexpectedly. We'll also be making individual segments of a different reality available as their own standalone files. So if you're keeping track of us with podcasting software, set it up to check on us every week, but not to automatically download what it finds because it might find something you already have from a previous show. But do keep tracking us, please, because before you know it, you'll be back in a different reality. Crazy white guys with microphones. Broadcasting from Purple Earth. Whoa.